Hi, I'm Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. The way we see the world today is informed a lot by our past, both the good and the bad. This is where our podcasts come in. Podcasts like Record of Service, presented by The Memory Project. This series tells the stories of Canadian veterans, their lives, losses, and service. You know, I figured out what you were doing there. He said, is Army, Navy, Air Force, civilians? I think you're decoding. Well, I nearly died on the spot. And I thought, my God, what am I going to say? Subscribe to Historica Canada Podcasts for deep dives into our past. You can listen to Record of Service on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by visiting thecanadianencyclopedia.ca. Never stop learning. A warning to our listeners. This episode contains potentially triggering subject matter and includes testimony directly from residential school survivors. That first night at the residential school, I had nightmares. And in the nightmares, I saw this face of this, this nun. And I was... Um, uh, nightmares all through the night, woke up in the morning, I had wet my bed. All the other kids had, had already gone up and gotten dressed, and she came out and saw me still sleeping and realized that I had wet my bed, had dragged me out and uh, laid her first beating on me. Danse, I'm your host, Shanine robinson Jarlis, and this is Residential Schools, a three-part series from Historica Canada on the history and legacy of residential schools. In this episode, we're talking about Inuit experiences at residential schools. The voice you heard at the top of the show is Abraham Angic Rubin. Abraham was eight when he was taken to Grolier Hall, the Roman Catholic residence for students attending Sir Alexander Mackenzie Day School. It was 1959, and the residence had been operating less than a year. Despite this, Abraham remembers there were already several hundred institutionalized students when he arrived. In 2008, he told his story to the Legacy of Hope Foundation. You get into the lineups, they get you in, cut the bulk of the hair off. After they uh, put you through the delousing or whatever they call it, um, you're into the, into the uh, in for showers, scrub down, into another lineup for uh, your clothes, and most of the kids couldn't speak English. You know, this was their first day run. In all, more than 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children attended residential schools. Of those, thousands died either at school or because of their experiences in the system. Indian residential schools operated in the North starting in 1867 and they ran all the way until the closure of Grolier Hall in 1996. That's Dr. Crystal Gale Fraser. She's a Dinjiju historian specializing in histories of gender, the North, colonialism, and residential schooling. Shori Crystal Gale Fraser Vaji, she won Kata Juliet Mary Bullock Shanun to Inchu to at Bruce Fraser Shitie to Inchu. Gu Yatesi Dichu to at Marka Andre Shitsu to Inchu to at Richard Bullock Shitchi to Inchu. Anuvik to at Dechen Chogenjik Gwitsat Gwitsia Gwitsin Ifli. That was a traditional Dinjiju introduction that I just gave. I'm Gwitsia Gwitsin, originally from Anuvik, and my family's fish camp along the Mackenzie River, Dechen Chogenjik. 
Crystal says these institutions were mostly established by Christian churches, but by 1899, they began to receive federal funding. The amount they received was largely based on how many students attended the schools. One of the things about the North is that Northern communities are often isolated. And really, in the late 19th century, early 20th centuries, there wasn't a lot of government activity. And so a lot of these schools operated with with very little oversight from Indian Affairs. And so... On the one hand, the schools had a little bit more flexibility to implement their own rules and regulations. But on the other hand, they were still guided by federal Indian policies that would have also regulated the other Indian residential schools in southern Canada. But by the 1950s, the government's attitude towards northern residential schools had changed. Particularly after the Second World War, Canadians were appalled that Canada had overtly uh, neglected Indigenous peoples, particularly those in the North. So the government built modern residential schools to address the public outcry. But the thing is, when Grolier Hall and Stringer Hall, its Anglican counterpart, opened in 1959, the negative effects of residential schools were already widely known. A decade earlier, the federal government ordered residential schools be closed and that Indigenous students be integrated into provincial day schools wherever possible. The name Indian Residential School pretty much had a negative connotation by the first quarter of the 20th century. By that time, it was fairly well known that the student death rates at these institutions were quite high, that Indigenous students were not thriving, and so When these newer institutions opened in the North during the 1950s, the late 1950s, the federal government made a concerted effort not to call them Indian residential schools. Instead, they called them Grolier Hall or Stringer Hall. But despite the differences in their names, Crystal says they were no different to residential schools across the country. Before 1955, less than 15% of school-aged Inuit children in the Northwest Territories and what is now Nunavut attended residential school. By 1964, 75% of school-aged Inuit children were enrolled. Overcrowding was an issue. At one point, Stringer Hall, with capacity for only 250, housed 300 students. And it was nothing like home. I lived uh, much like my parents, a very traditional uh, Inuit, Inuit lifestyle. Uh, Always dressed in uh, caribou clothing in the wintertime and switched to um, store-bought clothing in the spring and summertime. I grew up uh, as a seal hunter as well as a carver and uh, trapper. That's Peter Ernuk, the former commissioner of Nunavut. We noticed about one summer day in August uh, in 1958, uh, the boat was coming up to our um, outpost camp. Uh, so, um, as usual, my mother started to um, boil tea outside, you know, with Heather. She was making tea for the uh, visitors that were coming into our outpost camp. But when the boat got there, uh, the priest uh, came off, the uh, oblate priest came off the boat first and said to my father that he came to pick up Peter Ritnik, that I was going to school in uh, Sesterfield Inlet. So, well, there was a bit of commotion um, at that point because my parents were not uh, consulted uh, about the fact that I was going to be going to school. Peter was brought to Turkatel Hall in Chesterfield Inlet on the Hudson Bay. The year 1958, uh, whether I um, knew anything about it at the time or not, was the beginning of the end of my own culture and my own language and of my own Inuit spirituality. 
The Residential Schools podcast is part of a larger awareness campaign created by Historica Canada and funded by the Government of Canada in the spirit of reconciliation outlined by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Along with the podcast series, Historica also offers a video series, an education guide, and several new entries on the Canadian Encyclopedia about the history and legacy of residential schools. Visit thecanadianencyclopedia.ca for more information. In 1971, Canada became the first country in the world to adopt an official multiculturalism policy. It was meant to preserve cultural freedoms and recognize the contributions of diverse groups to Canadian society. Today, multiculturalism is a defining feature of the Canadian identity. But for much of our history, that wasn't the case. Listen to A Place to Belong, A History of Multiculturalism in Canada, a five-part series from Historica Canada, Join us as we explore the history of multiculturalism in Canada. Subscribe to A Place to Belong on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Many children had to travel thousands of kilometers to school by boat or plane. Because of the distance, most didn't return home for 10 months. In some cases, students didn't return to their families for years. Abraham remembers being terrified and alone when he arrived at Grolier Hall. I would say that the bulk of us were just scared shitless. No parents, no relatives. Uh, you weren't allowed to talk amongst themselves. When a child arrived at Grolier Hall, they were first segregated according to religion, and so Grolier Hall students were Roman Catholic. That's Dr. Crystal Gale Fraser again. They were next segregated according to gender. One may have been feeling lucky if she was able to remain with her sister, but then they were further separated by junior girls and senior girls. Students were then given uniforms which were often Southern clothing. For some, this was the first time they had ever worn non-traditional clothes. Peter still remembers his first day at Turkestel Hall. They took all of our traditional clothing, and for the first time I uh, saw and wore uh, shoes. For the first time, I saw a pair of jeans. Uh, for the first time, I saw a short sleeve shirt, and that's what we were wearing. We had um, overnight uh, become white men and white women, uh, little children. Forcing students to dress the same way was another method of assimilation. But as Crystal reminds us, in the harsh Arctic winters, clothing could also mean the difference between life and death. So there was one young girl who attended Immaculate Conception Indian Residential School in Aklavik, and this would have been during the 1950s. And she was eight or nine years old, and she shared a story with me that, you know, any eight or nine-year-old uh, likes to maybe break the rules um, and misbehave. And unfortunately, in this particular time, she she was caught and and she was punished and essentially what happened is that the nuns threw her coat down into the outhouse um and that could be uh very dangerous considering the extremely cold winters in Aklavik and she had to go the rest of the winter without a parka during the day, students were taught arithmetic and to speak and write in English. Physical labor, including cleaning and general maintenance of the dormitories, were for the most part the students' responsibilities. And the nuns and priests were brutal in their enforcement of language. 
Abraham remembers one nun in particular at Grolier Hall. She wasn't selected because she was good-natured and friendly, and they were looking for people who would do the job. Uh, within a few months or a few weeks, she could take a kid who spoke Dene or Gwich'in or Inuvalwet, and they'd stop and start learning a whole new method. And um, myself and a, and a couple of cousins were holdouts for several years. From the age of seven through 10, I could basically um, do basic reading and writing, but I'm also thinking both in English and in Inuvalkton. I could think and talk in both languages. The strength it took for students like Abraham and Pita to resist the experiences they endured at residential school is something Crystal is particularly interested in exploring. My research has looked at three Dinjiju concepts of strength. And so the first one is to I, and that means ancestral strength. So these students, for example, uh, would have maybe not called it I, but have they would have had a deep connection to their ancestors, their families, and their lands. They could have uh, prayed to their ancestors. They could have, you know, secretly continued to talk their indigenous languages, whether that was in their own head to themselves or to a friend. But after a while, Abraham says his determination to hang on to his language was eventually broken. By the age of 10, I think that uh, I must have gotten tired of the beating because that's about the time when I had stopped. I couldn't carry a full conversation with my cousins. Mainly by that point, my cousins would tell me to shut up. They'd get beaten up as well. Peter Ernuk was also forbidden to speak his language at Turkatel Hall. Here's what he told Legacy of Hope. A grade nine teacher told me to uh, open my hand and uh, she took a, a yardstick and really hit me so hard that uh, I can still feel the, uh, the pain today, you know? And she said, uh, don't ever let me hear you speak that language again in this classroom. You're here to learn to speak and write English and add arithmetic. Forget about your culture, forget about your language, and forget about your Inuit spirituality. A note here that the following section details specific instances of abuse that may be triggering to some listeners. Complex feelings may emerge. Take breaks and reach out to someone you trust. If possible, seek support from someone knowledgeable about residential schools and their legacies. These may include counselors, Indigenous knowledge keepers, or other community health practitioners. Once students became old enough, they were granted slightly more freedom and could sometimes sign themselves out of Grolier Hall. That gave them the opportunity to visit with friends and family in Inuvik, hold a part-time job, or spend time on the land. One of the things that we often don't think of is that even though these children were given more flexibility and leeway, that they continued to be vulnerable um, and they did have to act with care. And so their personal safety really continued to be a concern. Crystal says that many students were taken advantage of by educational staff, particularly the girls. While these older children were on evening passes, Education employees uh, sometimes hosted parties in their homes and they invited senior girls and senior boys over from Grolier Hall and encouraged them to drink liquor with them, to become intoxicated, to party, and then uh, they sexually assaulted them. Sexual abuse was a reality for many students at Grolier Hall. 
from 1959 through 1979, there was at least one sexual predator on staff at all times. Four supervisors were later convicted of sexually abusing students. In 1998, Paul LaRue, an activity supervisor and guidance counselor, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for abusing 14 boys at the residential school between 1967 and 1979. In 2013, he was found guilty of another eight counts of indecent assault and two counts of gross indecency. He was sentenced to three years in prison, not for crimes he committed at Grolier, but for those at a different residential school, Boval in Saskatchewan. Abuse went more or less unchecked at residential school, and the consequences fell on the students. Here's Peta. My generation of Inuit went through, a, went through quite a lot. We were... Um, uh, sexually abused, we were uh, physically abused, uh, we were mentally abused. Over the course of many years, I, I got into drinking to hide the kind of shame that I was put through by the church members, particularly a grey nun at the uh, residential school. This is the person that had authority. She had a cross, crucifix of Jesus Christ in one hand. Uh, she represented God. She represented the Roman Catholic Church. So she had a lot of authority. Uh, what can you do? Who can you go and tell? Even if you were to uh, complain about things that were happening to somebody in Chesterfield Inlet, nobody would have believed this anyway. The second concept of Dinjiju strength is vitai or personal strength. And that was also practiced by many students. But, you know, as we heard from Abraham and Peter's stories, it really took a remarkable amount of personal strength to live through these tragic experiences. But there were other students who used personal strength to act in other ways. And so individuals might have run away, particularly at Grolier Hall. There were many accounts of students stealing from the garden behind the residential school. Some of them snuck out and set rabbit snares and traps across the road in the bush to try and supplement their diets. And other personal acts such as secretly writing letters home to their family in their Indigenous languages. Even when some students did have a chance to return home in the summer, things were really different. Here's Abraham again. We would be like a bunch of prisoners set free. It was just enough time to get reacquainted. We knew we had memories of, ch of uh, you know, being out in the land, berry picking and doing all hunting, caribou hunting, ptarmigan hunting, and fishing and sealing, all those things that we'd spent the whole year just thinking about. And finally get out, and uh, it would be like sending off like a bunch of kids on an adrenaline rush and they've only got two months to, to, to get back, to catch up, to find out who your parents were, you know, just to get back. And as soon as you get home, you know time's running out. You're just, you're, you're wanting to soak in as much as you can because that's all that you're gonna have for the rest of the year. Before we went back to Inuvik, my mother told me be proud of where you come from. Be proud of your, your culture, your traditions, what we taught you. And um, whatever it takes, just keep fighting. 
But as the years went on, this blissful return became tainted. Some returned home only speaking English and were conditioned to teach their families to read and write. Here's Peta. Our parents had a great deal of uh, difficult time. Uh, they lost uh, their children. They lost their child that um, um, they were bringing up to believe that uh, he was going to grow like an, a true Inuk with um, uh, abilities to hunt, ability to speak, ability to uh, know the land, the environment that I walk on. But they missed out on that. They, um, um, they, no longer, they no longer know anything about me um, uh, after I had been to a resident to school. In 1975, due in part to poor conditions and the collective outcry from both parents and former students, Stringer Hall was closed. There was also pressure on the territorial government to open more day schools in the north so that children wouldn't have to travel so far from home or could remain in their home communities altogether. As more day schools opened, the need for residential schools lessened. In the summer of 1997, Grolier was turned over to Aurora College, and the era of Indian residential schools in Canada came to an end. In the late 1990s, a former student from Grolier Hall came forward with allegations of abuse that happened to him at the residence. Which led to an investigation that interviewed over 400 former students uh, from Grolier Hall. And this basically resulted in a class action lawsuit that helped to inform the process of how the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would come together and would compensate former students. This, Crystal says, is where the third Dinjiju concept of strength applies. The third Dinjiju concept of strength is gutai, which means communal or collective strength. The class action lawsuits against Grolier Hall and some of its staff also helped inform the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. In his 2008 apology on behalf of the federal government, then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper said that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission will be a positive step in forging a new relationship between Aboriginal peoples and other Canadians, a relationship based on the knowledge of our shared history, a respect for each other, and a desire to move forward with a renewed understanding that strong families, strong communities, and vibrant cultures and traditions will contribute to a stronger Canada for all of us. It's worth pointing out, the TRC was paid for by the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Some feel this placed the burden of reconciliation on the shoulders of survivors. Crystal agrees that this burden is misplaced. The work of reconciliation, in my opinion, needs to be on the shoulders of settler Canadians, really of non-Indigenous people who live in this country. No one is asking for everyday people to apologize for their ancestors. But we need to find a good, productive way forward where Indigenous people are safe. More Indigenous children are placed in the child welfare system today than were in residential schools during peak operations. Suicide rates are much higher than the rest of Canada's population. It's one of the leading causes of death among Indigenous children and youth. Abraham shares his memories of the high death rate at Grolier Hall. In Grolier Hall, during the years of the operation and a few years afterwards, they found that there was some upwards of up to 60 individuals who had died as a direct result of their attendance, either through murder, suicide, alcohol poisoning, 
that's a pretty high percentage. We need to find a, a place where Indigenous people are are respected, uh, which is still not the case, given the ever-increasing numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited individuals. And we also need to find a way that Indigenous peoples are honoured in Canada. Not only honoured, but never forgotten, according to PETA. We don't hold grudges against those people, but we want to make sure that these things never happen to young people again. Little children, never again, never. If you or someone you know are in need of immediate support, here are some resources. National Indian Residential School Crisis Line, 1-866-925-4419. The Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. Phone services available in Cree, Ojibwe, Inuktitut, French, and English. The Hope for Wellness Helpline also offers online support services at hopeforwellness.ca. Kids Help Phone, 1-800-668-6868. I'm Shanine Robinson DeJarlis. The Residential Schools podcast was written and produced by Historica Canada. The series is made possible in part by funding from the Government of Canada. Egasane to Pita Ernuk, Abraham Rubin, and all of the survivors who shared their stories. Special thanks to our consultants, Crystal Gale Fraser and Norma Dunning. Thanks to the Legacy of Hope Foundation for providing survivor testimony to the University of Regina's Shattering the Silence, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission findings. Fact-checking by Vivian Fairbank. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Egosane for listening.